This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Morning. Please keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 29. And it is not a simple chapter. Uh, the truths are not new. Uh, they are, in a sense, simple to understand, but this chapter is uh, enmeshed with a lot of uh, detail, background. Okay, so uh, we will I, will, I will try my best to uh, explain some of the structure, some of the detail, but maybe the best way to go about it is to consider uh, this scenario that happens in every church, where uh, two people from the youth group, uh, two people who were equally in their youth, zealous for God, you know, coming for Bible study, trained to be youth group leaders, two people who, when they enter university, one of them steadily grows in the Lord, while the other one, consumed by, you know, academics and hall activities, starts to slowly drift. But when they were both in the youth ministry, they were both equally zealous. So what happened when they went to uni? Or consider this uh, another example: two couples, you know, husband and wife. You know, another both two couples. They are serving in church. They come regularly, but when they start to have children, uh, one couple manages well. They seek to bring their children up in the wisdom and the discipline and knowledge of the Lord. But the other couple, because of uh, that new added responsibility, starts to come less and less, and then soon we don't see them anymore. Why? The difference? Well, the answer is found in Isaiah 29. Uh, So let's ask God to help us as we think and consider and seek to listen to his word. Let's, uh, Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and you are God who enables your people to hear. And so God, we want to look to you. We want to acknowledge that apart from you, unplugging our ears and softening our hearts, all of this will be in vain. But Father, we, we know that we need to hear your word. We need to have you speak to us, so please help us not be people who have our ears plucked, our hearts hardened against you. But please work in us that we may receive your word, that your word may do its work in us, we pray. Please help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a bit of the background is that we are moving into uh, a third section in Isaiah. And what's significant about this third section is that we are moving from the reign of Ahaz. Okay, when I say Ahaz, you must go boo. Okay, Ahaz. Yeah, bad king, right? And we're moving into the reign of Hezekiah, his son, who is a much better king. And then we do this. Okay, yeah. Yes, yay, okay. Now, Hezekiah, uh, the Bible says, was a king uh, whose heart was... Uh, uh, what is it? His heart was after the Lord, okay? But he wasn't perfect, okay? Um, and one of the struggles that he faced together with his father is the threat of Assyria. So the superpower is Assyria, is growing in strength, and one of the temptations that Ahaz fell into 
was to trust in his alliance with Egypt. So when we come to this uh, third part of Isaiah, when we come to the reign of Hezekiah, the question is, will Hezekiah continue what his father started? Will he walk in his father's footsteps and still trust in that uh, alliance, human alliance, political alliance with Egypt? Or will he, as Isaiah has been saying, trust in the Lord? So the structure of this uh, section from 28 to 35, there are six woes. Okay, W-O-E. Okay, you look at uh, the first verse in 29. That's woe. Okay, so there are six of this. And then six of these woes are followed by a historical account in chapter 36 and 37, which describes Hezekiah hearing and learning from Isaiah's preaching so that he doesn't trust in Egypt. And you can see him in uh, that, that passage very deliberately trusting in the Lord and the Lord very dramatically rescuing Jerusalem. Okay, so again, uh, the background is Hezekiah, will he be like his father? Trusting in man, in this human political alliance, or will he, as he's been told, trust in the Lord? So this six woes, contain the exhortation, the principles and the preaching. And it appears that Hezekiah learned from Isaiah. So that when crunch time came, he trusted in the Lord and the Lord delivered. Okay, so that's some of the background, some of the structure. So let's look at the uh, passage in 29. It says, Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel. Okay, I just need to get it out of the way, right? Okay, it is not talking about Little Mermaid. Okay, not talking about Little Mermaid, yeah. It is talking about the city where David settled. Uh, this is the only place in the Bible where Jerusalem is called Ariel. And Ariel means, uh, the Lion of God. Okay, that's what it, that's what it means. And the reason why Isaiah uses this, you know, nickname for Jerusalem is because in verse 2, God says, I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. So if you look at your Bible, the footnote, it will say that the Hebrew word for altar hearth sounds like Ariel. Okay, so this city, this lion city, where the temple is, where, you know, year after year, the pilgrims come, where the festivals are happening, where the sacrifices are happening, and they think that they are right before God. They think that, you know, God is okay with them, God loves them, God approves of them, because this is the place where the sacrifices are, are offered. This is the place where the people come, and the worship, and the rituals are done. But God says, no, no, verse 2, I will beseech Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like this area, this altar hearth. And altar hearth is where the coals are, where the burning of the animals actually take place. So God is saying, you think that by your sacrifices, you are okay, you are secure, but you will be to me like this place that is consumed. Okay, it is uh, a word of judgment on this lion city. So verse 3, what will God do? Uh, he says, 
I will encamp against you on all sides. I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Now, we know from history that God uses foreign armies, okay, uh, nations like Assyria, that will execute his judgment. But in this case, verse 3, uh, Isaiah you know, sort of skips the, 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 the intermediary person and says, it is God himself, I, I will be the one that will beseech you. I'm the one that is coming against you because all your sacrifices, all your offerings, they are a stench to me. You'll be like an aerial, this altar hearth where things are consumed. Now, why is God doing this? Okay, this is an important question to consider. Why is he seeking to come against his people, uh, bring judgment on them? Now, notice verse 4 says, when the judgment comes, they will be brought low. And it is, as it were, they will speak from the ground. You know, that their speech is no longer high and haughty. Oh, you know, we're the place where the sacrifices are offered. Oh, you know, we're the place where the temple is. We are secure. No, their speech is brought down. Like as if from the ground, from the dust, they will, they will mumble up, you know. It's, it's that picture of being brought low. So God's judgment, God coming against his people is to humble their pride, is to bring them down. Now I asked in my Bible study group, this uh, word of judgment, of what God will do, you know, I will beseech them, you know, I'm coming against them. I asked them, okay, so it begins in verse 3, but where does it end? Wow, so, you know, everyone had to give an answer. And then, you know, my group, uh, my group got Bible college students, uh, and that Bible college student, you know, his grades have been distinction, high distinction. But none of them got it right. You know, some said verse 9, some said verse 14, some said, but actually, you look at it, where does it stop? It begins in verse 3, this word of judgment. But it stops at verse 4. As suddenly as it appears, God shifts in verse 5 to now saying he brings judgment against Jerusalem's enemies. As quickly as it comes, now God turns his attention to the enemies. So verse 5, your many enemies will become like fine dust. The roofless hordes like blown shaft. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come. And how does it describe uh, God's coming? With thunder and earthquake, great noise, windstorm and tempest, flames of a devouring fire. These are all Old Testament images of God being present. God coming in power to do His work. And of course, when God comes like that, verse 7, the hordes of the nations, they will be vanquished. They, they think that, ah, Jerusalem is within our grasp, okay, you know, we've besieged her, they are just like sitting down, ready to be devoured. But then, you know, the, the image there is that they'll wake up and, ayah, we thought we had her, but, you know, no more. And so the question is, how did this happen? How did God come and, you know, all of a sudden rescue Jerusalem? Well, I think one answer is found in the end of, uh, this section in chapter 37, where the historical narrative of Assyria encamped around Jerusalem and how overnight God comes and the Assyrian army is defeated and this uh, proud king, Sennacherib, 
okay, goes home and he's actually murdered by two of his sons. Okay, it ends that badly okay, for these hordes of the nations that encamp around Jerusalem. So God comes suddenly and in power to deliver his people. Now the surprising thing is what happens uh, as a result of this deliverance. Okay, so you saw in your first point in the in the outline, uh, from judgment comes hope. You know, very suddenly God speaks a word of judgment, but out of the judgment comes that word of hope where he will deliver his people. Now what's going to happen after God delivers? It is surprising because we read from verse 9 something that we don't expect. What happens after God's deliverance is God says, be stunned and amazed, blind yourselves and be sightless, be drunk but not from wine, stagger but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, he has covered your heads. Now this is a surprising thing that happens after God's deliverance, that the people in Jerusalem are still blind. There's still a blindness that they they cannot see, they cannot understand what God is doing, that it is God at work. They cannot understand what God is seeking to convey to them. And so the image there in uh, verse 11 and 12, you know, you got this vision, it's words, it's plainly written, it's in a scroll. You pass it to someone who can read and then they say, oh, I can't, you know, it's sealed. They don't even bother trying to open it. And then you give that scroll to someone who cannot read and say, okay, hey, read this. And then they go, oh, you know, I don't know how to read. I mean, there's a lack of interest. There is no, you know, desire to find out. There's no, okay, okay, let me find someone who can read. I mean, it is using all these images of being drunk, being blind, being, and, and basically saying that even after that deliverance, God's people are blind to what God is doing there. God's people are still blind to what God is seeking to convey to them. So you can see in your outline there, uh, what causes this blindness? Okay, I believe in the second half of this uh, section, it is the hardened hearts. It is the hardened hearts of the people that have led to this blindness. And these hardened hearts are described in verse 13. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. So you see, this is what we've been talking all about. This city of Ariel, this lion city that took pride in its, you know, festivals going on and on. You know, the sacrifices are offered here in this temple. Or oh, we are the place where the worship of God takes place. So they took pride in that. They took security in that. But God sees through all that. And he says, yeah, you come. You come, you know, with your mouth, you know, with your lips, you say all the right things, you do all the right things, but, but your hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. God sees through it. And therefore he is not pleased. And therefore he is the one who brings this, you know, judgment on them. The hordes of the nations besieging Jerusalem. Because he is not simply contented when his people do 
what they're supposed to do. He wants his people to come and to come with their hearts seeking him. See, the worship of God that is not consumed with God is a worship that will be consumed by God, someone has said. And so I think we must pause here and we must ask the question, how is your heart today? Because obviously we are here and obviously it is a good and right thing to be at church on a Sunday morning or whichever day of the week. But as God has highlighted here, the people of God can come and do the thing, can be serving, can be part of a roster, cleaning up, you know, doing the beverage, doing the breakfast, can be leading a Bible study. I mean, you can be here preaching a sermon on Isaiah. But your heart, my heart, could be a million miles away from the God that our lips are saying we worship. So, how is your heart today? And this is the reason why, you know, at the beginning when we said about, you know, the two people from the youth group, you know, at first equally zealous, but when they go into uni, when the circumstances change, one drifts away. You know, the two couples, you know, yeah, they were serving, you know, hosting Bible study, but then when the children came, one couple drifted away. And the reason for that, Isaiah pinpoints here, is because all those times when they were here, when they seemingly did the right thing, the good thing, all this time, it was just coming near, giving that lip service to God, but their hearts were far from Him. And so, this is a danger that, that God in His kindness is putting His finger on. And, like, you know, my words are just, you know, human words. I, I'm just raising what the, the issue here is. I have no power in myself, in my words, to cause you to see and to, to acknowledge and to be aware that this is a danger that you are facing. That this is a, a, a you know, a, 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 this is a situation that you are in right now, that you are here, but your hearts are far from God. Only God can help you, can use this word to, to you know, as it were, pierce your heart, pierce through that, that hardened heart and say, hey, wake up. You know, that, 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 that through this word, he, he gives us that, that, that slap, as it were, and says, hey, yes, God, my heart is far. I'm here, I, I'm doing that thing, but, you know, I'm, I'm like the, I'm like the employee. You know, the employee that, that hates that boss. But whenever the boss comes, oh, we go, oh, boss, okay, what would you like today? Uh, cafe latte or flat white, you know? And then, I mean, and then, you know, he, he'll, he'll do what the boss wants, but when the, when the boss is away on holiday, he'll be the first one that, that says, ah, yeah, this boss, I don't know, I'm gonna, I can't stand him, you know, every time he's angry only, he punches the keypad so loud, I'm sick of that, you know, he's the first one to complain against the boss, but when the boss comes, he's, oh, you know, no, I mean, when you have that sort of colleague in the office, don't you just hate that guy? But here Isaiah is saying, God has all these people, people of his, and we come to church, 
we do the Christian thing. And some of us, many of us, at one time or another, we are just like that curly. It's just lip service. It's just externals. But our hearts, where are our hearts? Well, God says in verse 14, Therefore, you see, in a sense, it's not something that you and I have the power to change. Because God pinpoints the problem in verse 13, and then in verse 14, He says, Therefore, I, therefore, once more, I will astound these people. Once more, once more, once more, I will bring about a great deliverance. And when the Bible says, once more like that, it, it, it makes us think about the first time God did it. And it's meant to make us think about the great deliverance of the Exodus, where God delivered His people out of slavery in Egypt. So you know, with great miracles, with great working of His power. So God says, once more, I will work my power. I will wonder upon wonder, I will perform. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Now, what is this once more, this wonder that God will do? Well, because this passage is quoted by Paul, you know, the wisdom of the wise will perish, is quoted in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians. We know when Paul quotes it, he is referring to the cross. He is referring to the coming of God's Son, perfect, but paying our sins for us. Dying in our place, taking on God's wrath so that we who have sinned, we who have these hardened hearts, instead of facing death and wrath, can have life. This is, this is the, the great news of, of what God has done in the great exchange. Grace for our sin. This is that once more, that wonder upon wonder. Because this hardened hearts, that causes blindness. Right? This hardened heart, I mean, God's people back then, I mean, God delivered them. And yet they were still blind. Why were they blind? They were blind because they had hard hearts. Why do they have hard hearts? Hardened hearts because they are sinful. And so God's deliverance is, therefore I will do this thing that will get to the root, that will get to the heart of the problem. His son coming, Dealing with our sin. Dealing with the root issue so that God's people can have hearts that beat, that are soft, that can receive His Word, that can no more be blind but can see and perceive who God is, what He's doing. God will do it. God will do it. And so the first uh, woe section in this chapter comes to an end. And then it begins again with another woe in verse 15. Now this uh, woe here describes uh, God's people. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? Now it seems very general, you know, doing things in darkness. I mean, you can think about all sorts of, you know, sin that can be done in darkness. But in this context, it is actually referring to the 
the formulation of their plans, the coming out of these plans where they will form an alliance with Egypt. It's actually talking about, you know, God kept saying, trust in me. You know, I know Assyria is big and strong, he's this big bad wolf, but trust in me, you don't need to form this alliance with, with other nations. But, you know, the, the counselors, the, the king's advisors, they were formulating all these plans. How can we form this alliance with Egypt? Okay, and we know that's the case. Uh, if you look at chapter 30, uh, verse 1, uh, where God says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me. And so on it goes. So we know that this uh, plan formulated in darkness is referring to that. And you see how uh, Isaiah speaks about it. In verse 16, this refusing to trust God, seeking this alliance with Egypt, it is like, verse 16, turning things upside down, as if the potter were thought to be like clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? Now, there is no greater reversal than this. That the one who is made, the thing that is created, the creature, should say to the Creator, Ah, you don't know me. You don't know what I'm really like. You did not make me. Okay, because, I mean, in the Bible, there is no greater distinction. Okay, there are no two further things at, at, at two different ends. There are no two things that must never be crossed than the Creator-Creature distinction. Over on this side, there stands only one, God. The God who made everything. And so this refusal to trust is like this creature saying to God, ah, you didn't make me. You don't know me. I mean, there's, there's no greater reversal than that. And so this is how serious the sin of trusting in Egypt. Putting their trust where, where God has been saying, trust me. Trust me. And what will God do? Well, in this uh, woe oracle, uh, the judgment part is uh, skipped over and instead goes straight to God's promise of bringing deliverance. And God will, in his bringing about a deliverance, bring about his own reversal. I mean, his people have rebelled against him. You know, the creature want to talk back to the creator. I mean, it's a great reversal. But God will now bring about his own reversal in order to save his people. So verse 17, in a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field? And a fertile field seem like a forest. Lebanon is known for its forest. So it's a big reversal that it's no longer a forest, but becomes a fertile field. Verse 18, what is all this talking about? Verse 18, In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll. And out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Can you see this? This reversal 
The deaf will hear. The, the blind will see. I mean, God says, okay, yes, even though they, they sin against me, even though they rebel against me like that, okay, I promise. I promise, as he's been promising, he will bring about his deliverance. This reversal where now the, the, the deaf can now hear, the blind can now see. Can you see it addresses the situation that God's people were in? Right? I mean, we, we saw how even after God saving them miraculously, you know, the Syrian army, you know, uh, brought down, but God's people were still blind. Why were they blind? They were blind because they had hard hearts. Why would they have hard hearts? Because of their sin. But God says, okay, no, I'm going to bring about this day where my people will hear, where my people will see. So God very clearly, unambiguously, making these promises to his people. And so I asked at my Bible study group, what does it do for you? What does it do for you when you read these promises and then other promises like that? What does it do for you when we've been reminded and when hopefully God's Spirit has put His finger on this, this danger right? that Isaiah highlighted, that God said, I really hate this. I really hate it when my people come to me, lip service, but their hearts are far from me. And then we recognize it. We recognize again and again, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying. But I realized, I mean, that Bible study, I mean, I was doing it more so that I wouldn't look like a fool. And then, you know, I'm coming here and then, oh, once again, why am I here? Singing these songs, such great songs. I mean, the music team is so good. But then my heart feels like a million miles away. I mean, when we recognize this in ourselves, what are you going to do? How do these promises help you? What difference does it make reading promises like that? Every football fan knows what happened this week. Okay, I am neither a Liverpool nor Spurs supporter. In fact, I don't claim to support any team, but you know, in order to uh, maintain conversation with people, I do see the scores now and then. And no one, no one who is a football fan of any measure will have failed to realize, you know, two, uh, amazing nights where history was made. Okay, you don't need me to go into the details, but even their most ardent fans, right? You know, for Liverpool, 3-0 down against, you know, arguably one of the best teams in the world in the past, you know, five years, ten years. I mean, Three nil down, going to the the you know second leg. Even the most ardent fans didn't give them much of a chance. Spurs, okay, three nil down, going into the final forty-five minutes. But as we know, the amazing happened, right? And at the very end, when the when they realized they won it, I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the fans, the, the, the managers, the staff, I mean, all the, I mean, they were in tears, they were celebrating. And, uh, one of the Liverpool strikers who couldn't play, and, and, and precisely because their best striker couldn't play, I mean, the people are going, I mean, like, what, what, what chance do they have? So he was on a bench, he was injured, but he had on this t-shirt. 
that as I was studying this passage, as I saw the highlights, I go, the t-shirt said, never give up. Never give up. When you are confronted by the reality of how hard your hearts can be, when once again you are struck by how, oh, again, I'm just going through the motions. When once again you realize, I mean, this God has done so much for me, delivered me out of this and that and that, but then why is my heart so cold towards Him? Why, why, why can't I be in private, the person I am in public? Why can't there be that wholeness? And then that, that, that battle against our hardened hearts like is never winning. The promises that we see here must tell us never give up. Because God, God is the one. Therefore, once more I will do this. And He has done it, right? He has done it in the giving of His Son. The cross has happened. That wonder upon wonder that has dealt, you know, zoomed in, gone right to the heart, the root of our problem, dealt with our sin. He has done it. And this one who came, the Lord Jesus, when he came, in John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. What is he talking about? He's talking about how, because in the next chapter, he heals a man born blind. Okay? This was not just a guy who became blind. I mean, God chose a man who has never seen. Okay? He's never seen what red is, never seen what green is, and Jesus gives him sight. And the giving of physical sight is to prove his words that he says, I am the light of the world. I am the one that can truly open blind, spiritually blind eyes. So that the promise here where God says, the deaf will hear, the blind will see. Okay, it has happened. Jesus has come. He has done that work. And now, now we will still struggle. Now we will still struggle, face the reality of our hardened hearts. How come my heart is so cold? How come I'm falling into sin again? How come, you know, it's like that? But never, never give up. Because this God will have His way. And in verse 19, I think it helpfully tells us the attitude, the stance we should adopt. Okay, never give up. But what, 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 you know, what, what, what should I be thinking of? What, what, what attitude should I have you know, if, if I'm not to give up? Well, verse 19 says, Once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So if God says... It is the humble and the needy who will be lifted up. It makes sense, right? It makes sense that now the, the posture, the attitude you and I should take is seeking to be humble. 
seeking to be needy before God. Not like his people in the lion city. Oh, because they do this festival. Oh, because they do all these rituals. You know, they were proud, they were secure. No, we, we need to be people as God enables us to be. Humble before Him, needy, poor in spirit before Him. God, I need you. God, I need you to show me my hardened heart. I need you to show me, okay, I think that I'm, you know, like this good, I mean, this is perfection, I'm here, but maybe I'm here. Like, you know, my, my hardened heart has actually caused me to think that I, 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 I'm not in that big of a danger. We need to be humble and come before God. God, show me, show me my true state. Show me my true state. And then it may be that because of our hardened hearts, God brings about some discipline as he did on his people. But we need with humility to see that sometimes destruction from God is the best form of construction. It's the exact sort of construction that we need. Because by grace, we don't deserve anything from God. But by grace, God will give us what we need. And sometimes what we need is for God to shatter everything that we hold on to in this life. Instead of allowing us to go down that path where we think we are okay, we are secure. That God in grace will bring his people down so that we recognize our true need before Him. Such a great God. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.